This is Fiberside Chat, a 3GIS podcast, bringing you the latest practices in the world of fiber networks and plus architecture. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fiberside Chat, a 3GIS podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We appreciate you listening along to some great Fiberside Chat thought leadership. As you're listening, make sure that you're subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for a full catalog of previous episodes, as well as notifications when we drop new ones. And make sure you're going to our website, 3-GIS.com. Again, 3-GIS.com for more information on some of the technologies that you'll hear about today, uh, but more importantly, for some other 3GIS content, including podcasts, articles, videos, and more. So on today's episode of the podcast, we're dedicating the conversation to what former U.S. Representative John Lewis once said is the, quote, civil rights issue of the 21st century. And that would be access to the Internet. No longer a luxury commodity or a novelty, consistent and reliable Internet connections are critical for our modern economy, our educational services, healthcare, and general lifestyles. So in this podcast, we'll take a look at some of the technologies that are driving more efficiency into the network engineering processes and driving down costs for these large network deployments and operations, as well as getting some insights on what sort of mobilization needs to be accomplished to connect America's broadband deserts. For insights, I'm pleased to welcome our two guests, Jimmy Hall, VP of Engineering and Product Services with 3GIS, and Deb Sosha, President and CEO of the Enterprise Center. Deb, Jimmy, great to have you both on. How are we doing today? Great to be here. Great, Daniel. Thank you for having us. Pleasure getting to source both of your insights. I'm looking forward to this conversation and breaking down this really, really timely and important issue. So let's start by first getting a better sense of what the Enterprise Center does, Deb, uh, so that our audience understands the kind of perspective you're bringing to our conversation today. So give us that quick elevator pitch on the Enterprise Center and some of your work. The Enterprise Center is a nonprofit in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that works with the city and the county around issues related to economic development, digital inclusion, smart cities infrastructure, and innovation and the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Fantastic. And we're going to get more specific into some of the specific uh, network deployments that you've been a part of and uh, to what effect they've impacted the communities that you work with. Uh, So before we get into those specifics, I want to ask you both at a general level based on um, some of the work that you've done in the space, but also just paying attention to the status of the industry. What is the general status of high speed broadband in the United States? How advanced is it? Uh, how universal is it? And how robust are its capacities? So in answering that question, I'd have to say it depends who you ask. So if you ask the FCC, they say there are at least 21 million Americans without access. But we know that number is pretty low. Uh, the mapping and the information from the FCC is pretty inaccurate. If you ask Microsoft, they say it's as high as 162 million. So it's a it's a pretty wide range between 21 and 162 million. I tend to think it's closer to the 162 million. And a lot of that has to do with the way that data is reported to the FCC. There's a a really significant lack of clarity there. One of the most important pieces, I I believe, is that 
uh, whatever we answer today is an expiring answer and, and that tomorrow with technology moving as it is, then uh, there's there's always going to be that need to to improve and, and to uh, have higher speeds. But I do think that COVID was a, uh, a very uh, enlightening thing that happened as far as for high speed Internet access to the public. I agree, Jimmy. I think that COVID just highlighted how significant a problem we have in our country and has elevated the need to be, it made the need more urgent for us to respond and build out better infrastructure. I'm glad you both brought that up. I feel like COVID has really created the situation that accelerated and exacerbated already existing issues, uh, whether we're talking about trying to meet educational needs, but realizing that there isn't sufficient internet access to get all students to online education or realizing that the network infrastructures of our healthcare system in uh, more rural or underdeveloped areas uh, weren't ready to support the kind of influx of patient data that we were going to be getting through COVID. And that's just scratching the surface of how a lack of robust internet infrastructure Uh, has really been shown to impact our emergency response. So with that as context, what are both of your thoughts on why, even with this added pressure, an emergency deployment response of broadband has taken so long and why we're still, you know, from the federal to the state to, um, you know, in between levels, still kind of taking a a slow approach or still trying to figure out what the best approach is instead of creating some action now? I can talk about a little bit from the local level. So here in Chattanooga, we have um, fiber to the home in the whole footprint of our municipal electric utility, which is the Electric Power Board, EPB. And it was built because they were unable to get anybody else to bring fiber to the home. I think the importance of empowering every potential way of solving this problem is important in this moment. And there are 19 states that actually don't allow local decision-making around building broadband, whether that impacts their capacity to build a municipal network or a public-private partnership, or in some cases, co-ops. We need to remove those barriers. It ought to be all hands on deck at this point. Um, I know the process is complex. It is a complex issue to solve. But if we don't take that first step and start moving forward, we will never get to where we need to be. Yeah, I would say why, why it became such an emergency is because it really affected everybody, right? I mean, I think if you look at the, the people that may not have had uh, impact in the, in the past, we're definitely impacted here recently at, from, from students to work, workplace. Uh, it, just, it, it actually ran the gamut of how many people it impacted. And, and I would say too, Jimmy, the fact that we know who's not connected, right? It's predominantly seniors, people who have low income, uh, people with low educational attainment, and those in rural areas, right? Those are the folks that did not have access. And when you think about signing up to get a COVID vaccine, how do you do that? You do that online. And if you're a senior and you don't have access, how do you sign up to get the vaccine? Like there are so many emergencies occurring that we're responding with online resources uh, that are limiting who has access because we don't have universal access. Yep. And just just from a standpoint of of also the workers, right? The workers had a place that they could drive to, uh, set up shop and start working on their computers and have the internet access that they needed. Whereas 
if you if you're working from home, you don't have that access. So you're very limited on uh, how you can do your job remotely. Deb, I want to point a question your way. You brought up some of the local work that you've been doing in Chattanooga. I know you're a well-known industry advocate for getting connectivity to tens of thousands of individuals in Chattanooga and Boston as well through your own work and through work with the Enterprise Center. So can you describe some of that work for us and ground some of the processes of getting broadband deployed in those major urban areas? What are some of the complexities, especially of trying to reach those communities that you just said are uh, least able to access the internet? Uh, so older communities, uh, communities with um, you know le- less resources, less economic access. Give us your thoughts there. Right. I would say that you know the one of the m- most significant issues is the issue of cost. The cost for service becomes a real impediment if you uh, have very low income or you're on a fixed income. So I think there's an issue that we can uh, address there that would be helpful. But there's also the issue of uh, understanding how to use broadband. So what we do is we run programs that provide training, provide a device, and provide support to get low-cost home and internet access. Here in Chattanooga, we are providing all of the students on free and reduced lunch with 100 megabits symmetrical in their homes for no cost to the family, and we are guaranteeing it for at least 10 years. That's a partnership of the city and the county, local philanthropy, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee, a bunch of different entities have supported this, and the Electric Power Board, our utility, and the school department, Hamilton County School Department, everybody pitched in and it became a commitment to make sure our children are connected. And I I don't think every community can do it the same way we have done it, but every community can do something. And I feel like we've got to move this forward. We can't have whole groups of children who were already under-resourced and already experienced the homework gap, not able to access even the most basic of education. And that is a real concern. Now, Jimmy, to bring your perspective into this local conversation, and just for a little more context for our audience, you've managed the planning, design, and construction of fiber network projects with over 500,000 route miles managed, 50,000 route miles designed, and millions of premises passed. So can you give us some context on how the engineering challenges of deploying at the local level have evolved? Uh, and in what ways has the technology made it easier to deploy? Uh, in what ways has it become more of a challenge, whether those are technological or economic or structural uh, challenges that are putting pressure and how that has changed over the years? Definitely. the um, I would say that it is a complex, uh, the complexity of a, of a network is in that uh, planning, design, building, and maintaining and operating type, those those phases for sure. Um, construction probably being the, the, the most as far as the, the cost of a network. But I, I believe what we've found and, and what opportunity presents itself is how you can actually uh, design and optimize a network through some of the tool sets that we, we have at our fingertips now, which hopefully we get a chance to talk about, such as you know GIS and, and spatial uh, data, uh, not to mention just uh, design automation and some of those pieces. Uh, but yeah, just to go through the, the different uh, phases and the stages of, of a design, you know, from, and I, I know that 
uh, Deb will have some pieces that even have to happen before these these phases. But uh, planning where we're actually uh, having tool sets and utilizing planning to determine where's the best uh, location to either uh, strategically design or strategically lay out your plan of how you're going to serve certain areas first in the build to to uh, all the way down to design where you're going to actually develop the the work prints for construction uh, into the construction phases of how do you um, it's complex the work stages of construction to one uh, hand in the, the data to be efficient on but also to receive any changes from the field and then you always have the i guess i call the managing of the network so you have your operating and your repair what do we have that we can help uh, with managing and, and operating the from installation down into the maintenance uh, arena so those are kind of the stages that that you looked at and those are complex stages so uh, some of the tool sets we're seeing now uh, really uh, really help those and i would say if we started out discussing them it would be the optimization of the network which is a a particularly good opportunity for these ones that are building out networks where they they know their footprint and they're somewhat starting from scratch a little uh, to where they can design out a whole optimized network for an area which is something that in the past may not may not have necessarily been there from a, a isp level where they're they're trying to serve certain things uh, certain ways but i think this is a good opportunity uh, for these uh, these ones that are getting into the uh, network and, and deploying networks I, I would add to that. Uh, you're right. There's some pre-work you want to do. And, and part of it is you, you really need the support of local elected officials. You really need some support to create a permitting process that can be optimized and expedient. Um, you need to ensure that the community is on board, right? All of those things will help a project to move forward more smoothly right getting everybody being very transparent about process managing expectations about how long this is going to take and when my house is going to be connected all of that is part of the process and just makes it a bit more complex but if you do that homework up front i feel like the process itself runs more smoothly i mentioned earlier optimized networks and what i mean by that is you know uh, when, when you're designing uh, networks if we try to do it from a, I guess, how we've done it in the past, where it's a manual method, uh, the the human, the human mind can't really take in all the different points along the network and adjust them accordingly without it being uh, such an overwhelming, uh, complex, just revolving opportunity there. So when we say optimized networks, there are software and and systematic ways of. Uh, putting in rule sets, uh, cost of different components, the capacity of different components, and actually uh, understanding how those impact the overall network uh, uh, cost or expense to the overall network as far as physical assets, uh, labor, things of those nature. So when we say optimized networks, it's really taking all the components of a network and laying it out specific to rule sets and uh, capacities and helping to reduce the cost as much as possible while achieving the outcome of the desired uh, bandwidth and deliverables that you need. We've been talking pretty high level with our uh, conversation here on internet access. Let's get a little more granular on the technologies and the processes just to really understand what that looks like step by step and uh, what kind of direction needs to be given, whether that is financial or technological, uh, to make these deployments possible. So 
Obviously, getting a broadband network in place is complex, like you've both described. It takes a lot of key players uh, doing their part to make it happen. Can you give a pretty high-level description of the stages? So just break down step one, step two, step three, and just sort of what the major processes are that this deployment goes through uh, and how they influence the deployment of a broadband network. Yeah, if I broke it up into uh, maybe four from an engineering planning design managed perspective, that's that's the way I would break it up. Um, the first one being planning, right? So planning is a stage where you're going to have a little bit of a higher level, maybe budgeting exercise where you're trying to determine necessarily how much you estimated the cost in an area to build. But it's also cutting that into maybe um, different projects or different sections uh, so you can understand this is the most impactful area to build. Uh, this should be the first area to build. Uh, maybe it's from a return on investment. Maybe it's from some type of uh, other reasoning that you need to design or excuse me, to uh, deliver this area first. Uh, but those, those become items from a planning stage that you want to have prioritized uh, and, you, and you're able to understand the impact of each area and you can take that and, and put it into your plan. So from a planning stage, I would say it's from not only uh, estimation, but also also be able to work your vendors and determine uh, here's my run rate of material that I'm going to need. And some of those uh, some of those pieces. Uh, the next phase, I would say, is your design phase. And the design phase is going to be uh, taking that high level and those plan stages and actually um uh, going a, a further level down. So a little bit lower level design is what we would call or a little bit lower level accuracy uh, goes along with the design phase. So you're actually looking at permitting specifics, um, the actual constructability of the design, and you're you're uh, starting to design those uh, areas to where they can be communicated to construction. Uh, and then from design, you're moving into the construction phase to where uh, construction is taking those those engineered designs and they're out in the field installing cables, uh, reporting back completions, any changes that are happening and getting it to a point where uh, they can relay that information as complete and on into the managed arena, which is the next stage. So manage is going to be, OK, we've constructed this. Uh, there is a little bit of management on the side of construction where you're able to monitor what's where they are through the planning design construction phase but now you're into the managing of the network i guess so now you're looking at okay we've we've got a network in place all the way to the front of the home but now we have somebody uh, that has requested service so now we have to install from the uh, the right of way or the the pedestal at the front of their house to their home so we've got an installation process that we need to manage we also have you know, the health of the network. So we're managing any kind of reported damages or any uh, capacities of our network. We're able to manage that through a, uh, a means or a system. So I would say the four phases are planning, design, constructing, and managing. I would add, you know, the there's sort of the people side to this that goes along with the engineering side. And that's the part where you're, you know, you're making sure you got those elected officials. They're keeping everybody informed. It's incredibly transparent. You're marketing to the potential customers as you're building. You know, I think about uh, Sandy, Oregon, where the houses have a sign up front that says, I have Sandy Net, and that helps them sell their homes, right? And how that marketing has to happen in advance to get people excited about it. Uh, and because you want a market share, right? You need to have a share of that market in order to be able to make it financially 
successful. So I love to see how the different communities have found ways to really uh, make that fun and interesting for the community. In uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, they actually had something they called broadband and beers. And they got together in local pubs and talked to people about the coming broadband, right? I think it's really smart of elected officials to think very proactively about both the marketing and the transparency necessary for this to be successful. Now, let's chat about some of the network engineering decisions that can be made to improve the economics of these deployments. Um, Jimmy, I feel like this is going to be more of a question for you, uh, but can you break down what some of those specific network decisions are and how they can ease some of the financial burden of a mass broadband deployment? Yeah, I think so. I think the the main one is the availability of uh, of an existing infrastructure. So uh, what we're seeing with some of these uh, opportunities are rural co- cooperatives getting in the business. We, uh, we see some other municipalities that have access to utility information or utility access to their um, either joint use infrastructure that they already have in place. But those, those are going to be really opportune, opportunistic for those companies. So, for example, using an, an electrical uh, grid or electrical routes that they already have in place they have access to that's going to help them help them with their design phase it's also going to help them with the access of lower costs from a utility standpoint if they can go aerial and they have access to that so that's going to be a very economic uh, advantage uh, we also see some decisions being made on uh, what opportunities are there from a uh, return on investment aspect so from an economic standpoint do i go down a road where i have the opportunity to get more commercials commercial opportunities while I'm trying to develop my or deploy my network as well, right? So there's there's ways that they can look at the opportunities uh, with their commercial investments. So return on investment type strategy. Uh, we also have um, opportunity for those same kind of uh, opportunities with Internet of All Things or cell towers, any, any point that they need to uh, uh, serve in the future that they can go ahead and incorporate into their uh, their engineering and their network design, uh, they can take advantage of knowing those those areas where they're going to have to serve those as well. And I think one of the one of the things we see a lot too is some of these companies uh, that are going to deploy uh, fiber to the home, they do have some sense of a fiber network. Uh, maybe it's SCADA or SCADA type data, or it's uh, they're serving some other uh, municipal buildings. And those existing routes are maybe they're uh, beyond capacity or they're to capacity and they need to add more fiber in those areas. And they could take advantage of knowing, hey, in, in this area, we know that we need to add more capacity. Why not take advantage of our fiber to the network build too and grow those those routes with, with more fiber as we're deploying the fiber to the home network. So there's a savings on both sides uh, of their existing networks and deploying their new networks. So taking advantage of some of those opportunities definitely is going to help out with their economic standpoint. And proactively thinking about how as a community are you helping this happen? One is making sure you've got GIS data about every asset because a lot of times cities don't have that. But the other one is having something like a dig once policy where you're putting in conduit every time the streets dug up so that you have that asset and it is potentially going to help you or help whomever is going to build out a network. Speaking of, what are some of the network engineering technologies 
that uh, play the biggest role in improving the economics of these deployments? I know you already mentioned a few of them, but could you get more specific on how they uh, act as motivating forces for those engineering decisions and what the specific technologies do to make that financial burden less stark? Spoke a little bit about uh, design automation or using automated type software uh, to help you with your uh, network design. I think that's critical and probably one of the most important things, uh, mainly because, as I mentioned, trying to do this manual, do a, a network, an entire network manually and try to optimize it is, I'm going to say it's impossible, but it's nearly impossible. Uh, and that is because anytime you change a piece in the in the network, it just it, it filters all the way down throughout the network. So what you have there is if you're trying to do it manually, you're going to add one more component that you would not have to. So you, you'll end up, uh, and that spreads across every home, right? So if you add a $1,000 component in there that you didn't have to, and, and you have a thousand homes, then you just added a dollar to every home. So uh, I feel like the optimized and the, excuse me, the design automation is a very, very important piece of deploying a network to its optimized uh, capabilities and lowering the, the cost of the network entirely. And there, there are those programs already out there. And that's what we see a lot of these companies looking at and, and knowing that they're going to need those things to help minimize the, the cost of the network. Now, obviously, to get all of these networks deployed at scale efficiently and uh, with the kind of robust capabilities that we are um, framing this conversation with today, there obviously needs to be a healthy amount of funding and a uh, structured business model to make this happen. So what are some of the key sources of funding uh, as well as business models for building the networks that are required to fill these broadband deserts and get our existing infrastructure to where it needs to be? I think we're going to see some funding some federal funding that's going to help with the infrastructure builds. We are already seeing some states come up with funds that can help as well. I was disappointed in the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund from the FCC and who ended up receiving funds and for what purpose. I'm hoping that that can be corrected. Uh, I think a lot of this is going to depend, going to depend on whether or not uh, rural communities can get loans to help build because one of the one of the issues with a build is that you invest a lot of money before you see any return on that right and so there's a lot invested and so helping to backstop some of those loans would be really helpful too uh, i'm seeing a lot of communities get creative about that for example in ammon idaho they created local improvement districts and so they used the dollars that they raised through the local improvement districts to build out neighborhood by neighborhood. And they have an open access network. So they basically put in the fiber, they receive a payment from each home that uses it. And there are a bunch of different providers providing service. So it's, it's somewhere in the $16 range that you pay to Ammon Idaho for the use of their fiber. And for $10 more, um, after you've installed, for $10 more, you can get uh, gigabit symmetrical. It's, it's an amazing process, and it was a creative solution in a state that had a lot of limitations on what they could do. Uh, I think finding creative solutions and public-private partnerships and open access networks are really helpful 
I'm also seeing a lot of rural communities figuring it out themselves using um, their utilities, as Jimmy was talking about earlier. Now, obviously, with our conversation today, a lot of it has been focused on fiber. Uh, but to that point, we're also actively talking about how can we deploy fiber across the United States. So in the meantime, for folks that already have Internet, maybe it's not the most robust, but at least they have some level of access. How can we improve the existing infrastructure and uh, the existing connections that customers have with other kinds of network deployments, whether that's satellites or copper or anything else? What are your thoughts there, Jim and Debbie? I do think that satellite isn't is an option that, that hopefully that there's other technologies coming down the, the pipe for satellite to be more robust in their internet uh, speed offerings. Like I said, I think we all would desire to have fiber to the home uh, to the furthest out customer possible. Um, but then there's also some existing copper networks as well that there, there are some technologies in copper that maybe it is revitalizing some of the technologies in copper that can extend uh, beyond the, the the range at this point. Maybe it's a uh, bridging the gap between those copper networks to where there is a lower solution of a fiber fed to a certain point in the network to where it can be transferred over to copper for some of these ones that are uh, outliers that are way beyond the, the reach of the fiber network at this point. And I would agree with that. The deeper we get fiber into our rural communities, the better the options are and the easier it will be to move to the next step of bringing fiber closer and closer and closer. I would be thrilled to see us get fiber to the home uh, across the country. I know that that's a dream and it won't happen in the next five years. I'm not feeling really optimistic about satellite as it is currently. I'm hoping, as Jimmy said, there'll be something better coming down uh, in the future. But I'm a bit of a skeptic because there is a, you know, there is a latency there that I find concerning and also the low speeds. So I'm hoping that we'll get to a point where satellite is a better option. The one thing I worry about with copper is there's a lot of old copper out there um, and it's lived its useful life. And if we're going to replace copper, we ought to replace it with fiber. It ought to be just the way that we do this work. In fact, AT&T is walking away from a lot of their copper. And so uh, thinking about getting fiber as close as we can and continually improving those opportunities uh, in rural areas for me is a priority. Now to bridge our last few questions, we chatted about network engineering decisions that can improve economics as well as network engineering technologies that can improve economics and some of the business models that make this happen. If we connect the dots there, what are some of the technologies that are supporting newer business models to achieve broad mass network deployments? Uh, because I feel like the relationship runs pretty deep between economic opportunity, democratic access and processes for deploying these networks and the ability for all citizens to communicate. This is all a, a very um, cohesive ecosystem. So can you chat a bit about how technologies are supporting newer business models to make all of this happen and where that fits into the broader ecosystem? I definitely believe one of the things we're seeing the most of is GIS and, and spatial data being a, well, and, and technologies that are revolve around GIS are becoming uh, very important and, and they're, I don't know what stage they are in the frame of GIS being impactful, but I would say there's a lot more to come in, in the GIS realm. So when I think about things uh, such as drones, LIDAR technologies, 
uh, even RFID, which I think is probably one of the most, um, I'm, I'm kind of watching RFID technology just because I think it's going to be uh, something that is very impactful in the future. Right now, I think they're talking about 30 feet beyond uh, range, I guess. But if they were to in, uh, in, uh, make that range a little bit further out, I think that it's going to impact the, the business. I think also mobile software, having people in the field that are able to be on a tablet to update and, and do their business is going to be is impactful. And I also think that some of the um, the attribution you can do at a at a component level, whereas used to it was just an asset and you knew about it, but now you can you can add attribution to that asset. And you know more about that asset, and it's it's data that can be uh, brought in and, and used as one for design and also just for maintaining your network. I think the GIS elements and the spatial elements are are very important uh, from a design and maintaining the network. I also think that a network management system as well is, is, is something that maybe hasn't been as available to some, uh, maybe a newer company coming in. Uh, maybe it was, uh, you had to be a, a huge company to get a network management solution. Uh, I think that has changed and, and those are, they're available for any size company coming in. I think there's, uh, smart network materials out there now. So you have sensors and components that, that can, be proactive and, and monitoring and talk back and forth uh, about the network. So I think those are new technologies that are that are going to be great for new businesses. And then, like I said, all the software that's, that's available out there to maintain and manage your network. Uh, and it's all, you know, it's cloud-based too, which is a, a newer technology than that has been available in the past to where uh, uh, I don't have to have an IT group come in just to set up my my software solution to maintain my network. I can actually go through a a cloud-based solution and uh, I don't have to worry about my security concerns because it's handled with the, the cloud-based solution. So I think those are all definitely technologies that can be taken advantage of. All right, Deb, Jimmy, I feel like we're getting to the end point here of our conversation. I got a few more high-level questions just to get both of your thoughts here to wrap. Um, but we've talked a lot about stakeholders that need to be involved in this process to make network deployments both economical as well as feasible. Can you give us some context on where the burden of making these deployments happen really lies? How much should we rely on individual service providers to take this initiative? How much does the pressure need to be from local or state or federal government initiatives? Um, you know, should it be left to a general profit motive of trying to tap into untapped customers? Is that enough of a motive? What else do we need to do to make this mobilization happen? From my perspective, I think it really depends on how the deployment's going to take place. Is it going to be a municipal build? Is, a, is it going to be a co-op? Is it going to be an ISP? Is it going to be an open access network? Is it going to be a public-private partnership? But I will say it always matters when you have the support of local elected officials. I, I feel like it's uh, incumbent upon those local elected officials to really help keep this information in front of people so they know what's happening, right? This is such an important piece of infrastructure and we need to make sure folks are aware and also marketing it. And, you know, I think of, for example, Westminster, Maryland, which has a public-private partnership with Ting and how important it was, even though Ting was the ISP, how important it was for the city to be uh, actively involved in keeping the citizens informed and helping to build a market for Ting, 
right? So I think no matter what kind of build it is, the local folks being engaged is really helpful. And also getting them in early if it's going to be, for example, uh, an outright build by an ISP. How are we working on permitting? How are we helping to deploy? How are we making sure that we are doing the very best and getting the very best benefit for our citizens? And then just to ground this in some more timely uh, factors that could motivate at least a federal kind of deployment, uh, we've seen some talk from the uh, current Biden administration as well as the FCC to prioritize broadband access for students, which could mean major network deployments. Uh, Do you see anything at the federal level being what motivates uh, broader access to broadband as well as finally solving this issue of filling America's broadband deserts. The FCC does have, we're, we have a public notice out about the emergency broadband benefit um, that would help to pay broadband bills for students uh, to ensure that they could engage. I think that's helpful. I think one of the big questions for me is always, when do we, when do we invest in a short-term solution that we're going to continue to pay for? And when do we invest in a long-term solution that will remain beyond the crisis, right? So it's a, I think there's a give and take there. And on that note, I think that does it for our conversation today on Fiberside Chat. Thank you to both of our guests, Jimmy Hall and Deb Sosha, for giving us more thoughts on expanding America's broadband, the kinds of technologies, business models, and more that are supporting these mass deployments. So thank you again to Jimmy Hall, VP of Engineering and Product Services with 3GIS, and Deb Sosha, president and CEO of the Enterprise Center. Deb, if folks want to find out more about some of the work that you're doing with the Enterprise Center and read up or get in touch, how can they do so? They can go to our website, which is theenterprisectr.org. Fantastic. And Jimmy, if folks want to find out more about some of the infrastructure that 3GIS is supporting and some more thought leadership in this space, how can they get in touch or learn more? The best way to get in touch with us is at our website at www.3-gis.com. On our contacts link there, you'll be able to see a, a way to contact anybody in our company. All right, Jimmy, thank you so much for that. And thank you again to Deb. I appreciate both of your insights. Thank you again to both of our guests for your time on Fiberside Chat a 3GIS podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're going to our website, 3-GIS.com, and subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you next time on another Fiberside Chat.